Welcome to episode 190 of the Ski Podcast and thanks for joining us listener. Today we're going to be finding out about Maribel, past, present and future, Banff in Canada and Killington on the east coast of the States. Now my name is Ian Martin, I'd like to introduce my guests today, all our first timers on the podcast and I think between us we're covering three time zones today. So firstly I'm delighted to welcome Kendra Skirfield who is VP at Banff Sunshine Village. Hi Kendra, how are you? Hi, Ian. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, I'm VP of Marketing at Banff Sunshine Village, and we're getting ready for our winter season. Cool. And you said to me earlier in the green room that you're opening uh, this weekend. I think you're in Calgary right now. How's it looking? It'll be a different opening. It's been a bit of a drier start to the season, and we don't have snowmaking at Sunshine, so we're really reliant on Mother Nature, but we're getting creative with our opening and We should have a very campy weekend on the slopes. Cool. Right. Secondly, welcome to Crystal Killery from Killington, which if that's not nominative determinism, I kind of feel that you have to end up uh, in a resort beginning with a K. But welcome, uh, Crystal. Are you in Killington right now? I am. I'm at the resort. It's actually we're getting a wintry mix, so mostly snow currently. Uh, We opened last week on Friday, so November 3rd. Uh, we have a couple trails open. Um, we do have lots of snowmaking, so um, we do rely on that to get open. And we're just excited that the ski season has kicked off here in the Northeast. Great. We'll be discussing both those two resorts a little bit further on in the podcast. But finally, I'd like to introduce uh, David Lindsay, who's here today representing ESF uh, Maribel. But I think you're actually in the States right now. Is that right? I am. I'm in Washington, D.C. for the first time ever with a five-hour time difference. I arrived last night and I'm here for my godson's wedding on Saturday. Oh, right. How exciting. Well, thanks for joining us, despite the fact that you're probably trying to shake off a bit of jet lag uh, at the moment. We will be discussing uh, Maribel, not just the ESF and some of the courses that you have, but the history of the resort, a lot more detail a little bit later on. But a question I like to ask my guests when they're first uh, on the show, and at this time of year, it can be interesting to hear what the answers are, but it is when did you last ski or snowboard? Now, for me, that was when I was in uh, Zermatt back in August. I managed to get a day mm-hmm. on the uh, glacier uh, there. But let's start with you, uh, Kendra. When did you last get on the mountain? I was last skiing or snowboarding. I, I prefer to snowboard on May 21st last season. And it was right before I slushed up and I had to get some last turns in. Excellent. So were the lifts still running then in, in uh, towards yeah, the end of May? Yeah, we have a very long season. We're non-glacier. Our elevation is 7,200 feet above sea level. And we're right on that continental divide. So because of our location, we have a season that extends into May. Right. Excellent. And what about yourself, Crystal? I bet, you know, the resort's open. Have you been out there already? I have. I was out yesterday morning. Um, so that was exciting. Um, I did get in a couple days already this season. And before that, we actually stayed open until June. So we did get I did get some laps in in June before we shut down. Well, you've you've beaten us on both counts by the uh, the latest skiing, although maybe August and maybe I, I win that one. I don't know if that counts as last season or this season or what. But uh, you've been skiing already. That's very exciting. What about yourself, David? When you we last on snow? Well, I've lost this competition already, I'm afraid. Uh, 7th of April, Friday, Maribel, as always, um, skiing with my family and with my American cousins who usually ski in Beaver Creek, where we go regularly as well. Uh, so that was very nice having Americans uh, who know Colorado well ski in the three valleys and comparing the differences of which there are a lot. There are indeed. And if you're lucky enough, I know um, about 20% of our listeners are from the States. And I think increasingly people are taking advantage of the Epic Pass or the Icon Pass where they can get free uh, skiing over in Europe. Excuse me, Kendra? Or the Mountain Collective Pass has some great deals. Or the Mountain Collective Pass, very good point, and get their skiing uh, in Europe. And, uh, you know, to go to a place like uh, Le Trois-Vallées, the largest skier in the world, is obviously a great place to uh, do it. Now, we've mentioned a bit of snow and resorts opening. And, you know, it has been very encouraging. You know, over here in the UK, we've been burdened by Storm Kieran, which has been throwing rain down all over the place. But that has thrown down quite a lot of snow uh, in the Alps. So we have uh, uh, some snow reports now to uh, drop in from our regular contributors. We've got Andy Butterworth from uh, Kaluma Ski in St. Anton, Robin Shah from Verbier and Jen Sang from La Plan. So let's have a listen to what they have to say. Hi, everybody. Hi, Ian. Great to be asked to do such an early season 
snow report from St Anton. Uh, being asked to do one so early can only mean one thing, that there is snow, which is great. Um, quite rare to have so much snow this early um, in November. It's currently the 7th of November, um, 8 o'clock in the morning. I've just driven into the office, um, probably spent about 15 minutes defrosting the car and de-icing the car. It was definitely into the minus 7s, 8s, 9s last night, overnight. As I drove in, a couple of cars uh, passed me coming from St. Christophe which still had a couple of centimetres of snow still on the roofs that hadn't been cleared properly, which can only be a good sign, which obviously meant there was fresh snow overnight. Looking at the forecast ahead, um, it is pretty positive. I've actually got three different forecasts in front of me. Um, it's interesting to see all the articles in the, the press, in the news at the moment, um, a lot of the journalists writing about the death of the Alps again, how there's going to be no snow in December, how everyone should be leaving and heading, flocking to the States to ski. But let's have a look at what the actual snow forecasts are saying at the moment. I've got three up in front of me, which is quite interesting. Um, I obviously can look out my window and see that in the village of St Anton at 1,300 metres, there isn't much snow in the village at the moment. There's definite frosty layer, but I can see on the slopes um, there is definitely snow. It's not man-made snow because the cannons haven't started yet. It's all natural snow. Uh, so the snow line is probably down to about 1,400 metres, um, which is pretty good for this time of year. Uh, and that means St Christophe, which sits 1,800 metres, is under about uh, seven or eight centimetres of snow at the moment, which is great. And the up top, I know from seeing all the Facebook posts and all the social media, lots of friends have been up skiing, touring, uh, hiking. So there is there's plenty of knee-deep snow um, uh, up on the Schindler Chutes uh, and, and definitely up higher up. And as we look at the forecasts going going ahead, great to three, three, see these three different forecasts. I've got the St Anton Tourist Board forecast, I've got the um, snowforecast.com forecast, and I've got the Google review uh, that summarises all the forecasts together. So if I look at the Google review, it's absolutely amazing. Um, it's going to be dumping with snow um, pretty much all of... Uh, all of this week. Um, from tomorrow going to be sunny. Wednesday the 8th going to be sunny. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. It's going to be dumping with snow with temperatures ranging from minus 8 up to uh, 8 degrees, to, uh, up to plus 8. So that could be quite interesting. Let's see if that comes about. I look at the St. Anton forecast, um, the local tourist board, what they're saying. And indeed, tomorrow is going to be quite sunny, uh, but chilly. Um, and going through the rest of the week, Thursday, Friday, Saturday is going to be a little bit, of, little bit of rain, a little bit of snow, but freezing rain, which is actually kind of what we need at this time of year. The mountain needs to freeze. Everything needs to freeze. The ground needs to freeze so that when the snow does come, it actually sticks around and doesn't disappear. Um, when I look at snowforecast.com, um, they usually give pretty in-depth uh, weather maps. It shows the snow coming from the last three days, and it shows the snow pattern potentially for the time ahead is pretty good. Uh, next nine days, bringing... Um, up to 29 centimetres of snow, um, which would be quite amazing. Uh, it certainly helps with all of our bookings, all of our business over here in the Alps. When the snow does come, uh, bookings do pick up. Uh, everyone gets more excited. Let's keep our fingers crossed for more snow. Colder weather's coming through, um, and let's hope that that snow forecast rings true. Uh, lots of snow comes in the, in the, in the following days. Um, look forward to more updates as the season goes on. Cheers. Wow, what a day. Unbelievable early season conditions up here in Verbier. There's like 30 centimetres of beautiful cold powder lining the mountains. Sun's come out. The cannons are going. Oh, the conditions are just going to be amazing for the start of the season. Uh, they're not opening this weekend. There's another up to 50 centimetres forecast on Saturday and Sunday and likely they're going to open probably at the end of the next week sometime. Should be just all time to start our season conditions. November the 3rd. Wow, just superb. Hi Ian and the Ski Podcast. This is Jen from That's La Plan coming to you live from the piece. It's funny enough, in La Plan. Now, I am actually on the piece, but I'm just walking because, of course, our lifts aren't open yet. They'll be opening on the 16th of December. But I just had to get out and try and get some of these snowy alpine noises in your ears because unless you've been living under a rock for the last week, it has snowed and it's snowed hard across the Alps. So here in Le Plan, we've had snow down to about 
1700 meters more or less and um, I'm living in I live in Plan Center and I'm currently walking through the forest in Plan Center and we had maybe 30 to 40 centimeters of snow at this level and of course much much higher up at the um, Roche de Mio and up at the glacier level up at 3000 meters so it's super super exciting but the thing that's really happened this year we've had snow this early at the kind of start of November in the past whilst I've been living here but what's happened is the temperatures have stayed really, really cold, right down near zero or sub-zero in between the snowfalls. And so the snow has just stuck to the ground and it has stayed around, which is awesome. <laughs> so hopefully it means we've got a really good base for the start of this winter ski season, fingers crossed. Um, as I'm walking around, it is Thursday morning while I'm recording this, and there is a little fluttering of snow in the air, but nothing too exciting. But what is exciting is the forecast for the next couple of days. So here in La Plan again, we've got a forecast of 30 to 40 centimetres falling hard tomorrow and then carrying on through the rest of the weekend. So fingers crossed that that will be happening. And I'm sure you will see it all across the resort social media pages and things because it is all anybody can talk about, of course. <laughs> so this is Jen signing out from Le Plan and that's Le Plan. Thanks very much. See you on the ski slopes. Great. That was really good to hear from them. I'm very jealous of uh, Robin, who's already got a few turns in on the snow. Hopefully I'll be out in Verbier later this uh, season. Uh, this seems like a good point to remind you, listener. Uh, you can save money this winter when you book your ski hire at intersportrent.com and use the code ski podcast. You get a guaranteed discount for all ski hire in France, Austria and Switzerland. And to make it even simpler, you don't even need to use that code. You can just take the link in the show notes and your basket will automatically be reduced. Uh, regular listeners know I like to use Intersport when I'm in the Alps. Uh, I wouldn't pay ski carriage anyway, uh, flying because I normally travel by train, but it does save me the hassle uh, and I can swap them while I'm away. So if I'm ski touring or on piece on powder, I can just change my skis during the course of the time that I'm away. So if you want to support the ski podcast, uh, please do remember to book your ski hire within sport and to use the code ski podcast at checkout or take the link in the show notes. And if you do, you'll save money and you'll be helping the podcast. And uh, I have a couple of, uh, uh, bits of news just to bring you up to date with the listener Mia Brooks who we've chatted to a few times before still only 16 years old and competing in the snowboard world cup got a third in the Kerbig Air in Switzerland and coming up this weekend we have the first uh, of the downhill races in Zermatt the first ever cross-border international races are going to be starting in the Zermatt area in Switzerland finishing in the uh, Chavinia area in Italy it's the highest ever World Cup races there's been quite a lot of conversation in the build-up to it about snow farming and use of, of diggers JCBs on the glacier to to fill in things and uh, you know I'm going to put a link in the show notes if you want to read a little bit further about that but I'm very excited about it with the snow that we've got that event will definitely be going ahead so uh, look out for that this weekend 11th and 12th in Zermatt men's races and I think the women's races are the following weekend 18th and 19th but while we're in Europe let's move on to uh, to David uh, now, some listeners might have worked out the link to Mirabel when I introduced you, uh, but perhaps you'd like to explain why the very British surname Lindsay has such a, a close link to the French ski resort of Mirabel. Well, my father is happily considered the founder of Mirabel, a subject which I always like to mention to everybody I meet. Um, and, why, and why not? You know, exactly. if your father is founded one of the greatest <laughs> ski resorts in Europe. I think it's a you know a topic of conversation for sure. And he first went out there in 1937, pre-war, um, at the age of 37, because he was born in 1900. Um, and he fought in the war. He was in the SOE in Burma, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Came back in his colonel's uniform, and Mirabel had started a bit before the war um, and continued thereafter, but with slender means compared to Courchevel, which started afterwards, but overtook us yeah. quite quickly. Courchevel yeah. had larger capital backing it. Um, but Mirabel has grown up, you know, as a resort which people say is attractive, lots of chalets, and of course nobody at that time I think could have forecast quite how big skiing was going to become. 
Uh, absolutely. Well, I, I mean, I did three winter seasons in Mirabel, and I know that area and, and one in Courchevel, so I know that area uh, very well. But yeah, it, I like the way you casually say, you know, your your father went there in 1937, but presumably when, when he went there in 1937, it was just farming land. There were farmers. There were obviously no lifts, no hotels either at that stage, right? Yeah, I mean, if you go back into the detail, and luckily as a great book about the first 80 years of Mirabel, which has been uh, written by my friend Jean-Marie Chauffel, the historian of the valley. You go back quite a long way and you find out that there'd been this little drag lift above Lizalu, which was built for the school children quite a long time before, and there were bits here and bits there, but basically there was nothing that you could call commercial, and there was nothing commercial in the three valleys. But as we all know, you know, skiing grew as a byproduct of winter sports. People before that used to go all over Europe, well, not all over Europe, but to resorts that were rail mountain resorts like Kitzbühel and Zermatt and Chamonix, you know, which were famed for their climbing. And people went and they skated and they curled and they did all sorts of things. Skiing was just one part of it. Um, and then developed from that and, and and has become so big. There was no climbing, and there still is no climbing to speak of in the Three Valleys because the rock, unlike the Chamonix Valley, is rather crumbly. You stick your piton into the mountain and a bit of the mountain falls off. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, there's no climbing, therefore it was not one of the original resorts. It was a, a, a second-generation resort, I suppose. And and am I right in saying, because I read around uh, this uh, a little bit, he went out there pre-Second World War, partly because he was motivated to try and find or develop French ski areas as a, because people were sort of moving away from Austria at that time? Yeah, there's a, this thing about the Anschluss in 1938 when Germany uh, did a seemingly rather friendly invasion of Austria. Uh, but actually, that had nothing to do with it. What happened was he met a French man in London called Comte Jean Gaillard de la Valdenne, whose family I have tried unsuccess- unsuccessfully to trace. They seem to have disappeared. Um, if anybody knows anything about them, I'd be pleased to hear. Jean Gaillard de la Valdenne had already discovered the Mirabel Valley. He'd already seen the potential of the Mirabel Valley but he wanted some finance to develop. And my father put himself forward as the finance rather bravely, I think, because I don't think his means were enormous. And certainly his means after the war were a lot less than his means before the war. And because of that, Maribel grew slowly with an almost 50-50 mixture of French and British shareholders. Um, and people didn't get paid because there wasn't any money. Uh, Gilles de la Roque, a famous Frenchman, left to work in Courchevel and became the guy with the address book who set up Courchevel because my father didn't have enough money to pay him. Charlotte Perillon, the famous interior decorator and architect who worked with Le Corbusier, um, couldn't get paid for her enormous talent, but my father gave her a plot of land on which she built a chalet, which is now listed, the only listed chalet in Mirabel. Um, so it went on like that. It was almost a family affair, but with a very, by family, I don't mean a Lindsay family, I mean a Maribel family. Um, and um, and they had a lot of fun. They had a lot of fun. It's, they had a lot of parties, apparently. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure they did. I mean, I did read so a number of things there. You mentioned uh, uh, Jean Gaillard uh, de la Valden. You know, that he was a World War One air ace who was married to a Spanish uh, tennis star. He sounded like uh, uh, the, the type of character who'd have quite a good address book. But the way that the model worked in Maribel was slightly different from Courcheval in terms of the fact that I think he, uh, Jean, uh, and your father bought land off farmers and then sold that off to people and gradually developed the resort plot by plot almost. Yes. I mean, my father sold our chalet when I was two in 1958 in order to build another teleski. I'm not sure what my mother made of it, but we lived in a flat for 18 months before we eventually built another chalet. But things were very much 
um, hand-to-mouth, and my father was anything but a property developer. Having organized the purchase of an enormous amount of the land, he subsequently didn't want to develop. He wasn't that keen on anybody else developing it either. You know, property developers were kept at bay. Um, and he used to sell a piece of land to people. He used to say, well, I've got to sell it to someone, so I might as well sell it to you. And with that revenue was the revenue to build another ski lift. So it went up incrementally, but my father wasn't a businessman. He was more of a visionary. He was able to see that it would be a great location for a, a ski resort. I mean, I read that when he went pre-war, pre-Second World War, uh, he went with two guides and they climbed up to, to uh, Salia. They basically skinned up there, which is quite a long way. We don't have any lifts uh, to take. And then skied all the way down to breed le uh, which is, you know, a big a big run down there. So a huge walk up and a big run down. And, and that's where he fell in love with the place. And the guide was Celestin Gacon, one of the famous Gacon family. Right. So many of these names that you mentioned, uh, uh, Jean-Marie uh, Chaffel, you mentioned uh, uh, before, uh, uh, they're all uh, resonant uh, with French ski resort uh, uh, history. So he came back after the war as a colonel, having uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, fought during uh, the war. And then develop the resort, you know, property by property, putting in uh, extra lifts. But obviously you lived there for a long time because I think you said then, were you born out in Maribel, were you? Well, I was born in Chambéry, basically in Maribel, yes, and brought up there. Both my uh, two sisters who were a bit older and myself were homeschooled by our mother through the PNEU correspondence courses. And my sister didn't go to school until they were 10. And then they went to Switzerland. And I went to prep school in England when I was eight. Yeah, it's slightly, slightly unusual upbringing, but with plenty of skiing. Yeah, well, not many people get to, you know, have their uh, base as a uh, ski resort. And, you know, evidently, if you were living there in the 50s and seeing it through the 60s, you would have seen a huge amount of changes. When do you think the uh, everything kind of sped up? When did things really develop in Maribel? I remember coming back for Christmas... 1986 and the six-man Tuniet telecabine had been built and the difference between a six-man telecabine and the previous two-man telecabine is quite startling. When my father died or the year before my father died in 1971 he sold to Michel Comwe, a property developer and that also marked a big change. The 70s marked a big change. My father who certainly wasn't a property developer, sold to someone who was, and all the Plateau de Morel, those rows of larger apartment blocks underneath the Rompois and the Ronnies down there, uh, went up. Maribel grew in a way which it hadn't grown before. Uh, there were obviously the 1992 Olympics later. There was a lot of development before that. And presently, there are cranes, there are lots of cranes, and everybody's saying, well, this is the final stage of development, you know, but they've said that before. But the amount of development going on in Maribel at the moment is considerable. The standard of building is very high, and that is reflected in the prices. Property prices are sky high. Last year, you know, I remember the week had a front cover saying something like, is skiing dead, referring to global warming? Well, property prices are not reflecting that at the moment. No, I mean, that's for sure. I think part of that is like a post-COVID thing. People like that idea of a bolt hole uh, in the mountains. But um, one thing that is kind of clear is that resorts tend to be upgrading their properties and, uh, you know, taking... We had a conversation, I think two episodes ago now, uh, when I spoke to Wasteland, who was saying that one of the problems with finding uh, accommodation for student groups is that there isn't much two-star left yeah. because everything's four or five-star now. Yeah. But David, let me ask you, you're an instructor. At some point, you must have qualified an instructor and you've been with the ESF in Maribel. Is that right? Yeah, I qualified as a Bayesian instructor first and did... Um, my apprenticeship in Abbey Moor for two years. I wasn't good enough to be a French ski instructor. And then I did my 
um, my New Zealand certification, and then I did my French certification afterwards. I've worked for the Maribolski School for 46 years, I hate to admit. Sorry, one of the reasons that you're here today is we swapped a couple of emails about some uh, masterclasses. I wondered if you could explain a little bit about those. Yep. Well, this is a new product launched by the Mirabel ESF with me managing it. Um, I launched a not totally dissimilar product in the 1980s called the International Section, which was successful. The difference then was that we were the only ski school. And now I just looked up before, before coming on air this morning, the number of ski schools in Mirabel. There are a number of them. Amazingly, yeah. The ESF remains by far the largest, with something like 400 instructors, the next biggest being Oxygen, with about 35 instructors. Um, as the technical director of the ESF mentioned to me the other day, the, the, the second ski school is really the independent instructors. There are over 100 independent instructors. But with 400 instructors in the ESF, launching a new product like Masterclasses is wonderful because I can try and select some of the very best instructors. And I think building a new product that clients are going to like depends firstly and foremostly on the quality of the instructors, um, how good they are, um, how much they like skiing with their clients and bringing on them, and also how much uh, they like working as a group, exchanging ideas, bringing new things to the fore. Um, you can imagine the sort of things we're doing in in, in master classes, you know, we've got slalom and we've got moguls and we've got off-piece and we've got technical exercise and we've got biomechanics. We've also got an introduction to carve the new exciting intelligent insoles, which I haven't worn yet, but I've got a pair ready to go. Um, yeah, can I just chip in there, David? I used a carve last year and tested it. There's a review. I'll put a link into the uh, show notes. But that is really interesting, and that kind of makes sense that you'd bring that in for this kind of level of skiing. I, I, I think it'll be interesting. And just to mention, the the the, uh, the master classes are a maximum of six people in a class. They're for adults. Right. They're in English. But they will only be happening for four weeks in January, starting on Sunday, the 7th of January. And... For your 500 euros, which I think is a is a reasonable price, you get two three-hour-plus mornings, two three-hour-plus afternoons, and a whole day um, at the end of the week. And I think it's going to be an exciting product. Cool. Excellent. Well, there's evidently not many places. So, listen, if you're interested in booking that, I'm going to put a link into the uh, show notes. I just wanted to bring uh, Kendra in at this point because we were chatting earlier, and I think you've got a connection to Maribel you wanted to share with David. Yes. Yeah, so, David, my family, like yours, has really – I grew up on the slopes of Sunshine. My grandpa bought Sunshine Village in the 80s, and my dad is – the president CEO, and he has really developed the resort from a small family resort to the world-class destination it is today. And when I was 15, I was lucky enough to join him on a trip to France and Austria to check out the latest technology in lifts. Our manufacturer, Palma, was a French company, and we rode all of the gondolas of Mirabel and Trois Valley. And I was with a group of older men. They were probably in their 50s. To me, as a 15-year-old, it was very old. And I was so <laughs> desperate to hang out with some children my own age that I met this group of Scottish boys. And they were quite cute, but they opened their mouth. And I couldn't understand a word they said. <laughs> and I remember saying to one, I thought you spoke English in Scotland. Needless to say, I did not make friends. <laughs> I think that's hilarious. You're over there to, did you say you're over there to buy a gondola? Yes, we were. Brilliant. And and David, I think I'm right in saying that the, the Pommer family, Pomagalski might be the full name. Don't they have a chalet in Mirabel? Yes. So the original Pomagalski came from Poland and then Bernard Pomagalski, nicknamed Kinu, had a chalet in Mirabel for a long time. And um, as many of us Remember very sadly, his daughter, Julie Pomagalski, was killed in an avalanche in Verbia during COVID. And she was the head of the Evolution Ski School and, uh, and a, very, um, a very big figure in the Maribel Valley. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, uh, Julian, when I was working out in uh, Maribel, someone told me, and I don't know if this uh, is apocryphal or not, but for the Poma Chalet, the family chalet, they actually had a lift connecting the, the garage to the chalet. Is that true? 
There was a little telecabine. That's like, you know, if, if you've got the kit, then why not? Why not use it? Cool. That's that's brilliant, David. Uh, actually, Kendra, I'm going to move on to you now, if that's OK. okay. Let's, uh, let's have a chat about uh, Banff Sunshine Village. I actually knew a little bit about your history because I know that you do your own podcast called uh, For the Love of Winter. And I, I listened to uh, the uh, the um, initial episode, which got all about yourself and your background, which I found, uh, you know, really interesting. You know, you talk about how you're part of the tiny tigers which i presume is like a you know what we call the putty loo or something uh, over there and deliberately falling off the lift uh, i believe you, you did at one point to get off uh, to get off ski lessons that rings a bell because my brother and i I, re- I definitely remember doing that in saint anton and losing our uh, ski group so we could go and ski on our own that's something that's something that happened to you when you were younger yeah my cousin and i were in ski racing we did a nancy green program and Sometimes we got bored. We didn't want to ski gate. So we had this old T-bar and we would purposely fall off, go after our instructors. And then we would go ski the terrain we wanted to and stop and get hot chocolates for lunch and just really have the fun of winter. I think winter is so ingrained in who we are as Canadians. And it needs to be celebrated because we have it for seven months of the year. Why not enjoy it? I mean, you know, evidently, uh, let's say you were, you were born into the industry. I think, you know, so many of us who are in the industry have that uh, real sense of uh, connection. But I also heard within your po- uh, podcast that you had your palm read at one point, which uh, <laughs> suggested that you were definitely, uh, you know, committed to the industry. Yeah, when I was about late 20s, I was between grad school and figuring out what I wanted to do. And there was a psychic fair. So I walked in and I put my hands down on the table and the woman looked at me and she said, the mountains, the mountains are who you are. They're everything about you. They're in your palms. They're in your soul. And I kind of looked at her like, uh, like a skeptic. I'm not sure if I'm buying into this, but I listened and I, I still am surprised that she picked up on the mountains were so much a part of me, especially when I wasn't wearing any mountain swag at the time. Well, good. I'm glad uh, you obviously didn't have your name badge around your neck as a, as a clue. So you, you know, because of your father's work, you were working at Sunshine Village from pretty uh, early on. Yes. So my grandpa, unfortunately, was killed in an avalanche before I was born in 1985. And my dad was a young, my dad was 28 when he took over the resort and became the visionary. And my grandpa bought Sunshine because he thought it was the most beautiful place he'd ever been. And it's kind of been this love story to develop it and to grow it and to make it worthy of its location in Canada's first national park. We are located in Banff National Park. And Banff National Park as a whole is roughly the size of Switzerland. Unlike the European resorts or other resorts, really only 4% of our resort is developed. And we're lucky enough to have a small footprint of that 4%. And we want to be able to inspire everyone to get outside and enjoy the beauty and the thrill of the mountains. And it's been quite fun watching it grow and change in my lifetime. And then, of course, seeing the difference in skiing between North America and Europe. For sure. So just to clarify then, so you you live in uh, Calgary, but mm-hmm. the resorts or the resort is um, based out of Banff, which is a yes. town in the National Park. But there are three different ski resorts. So so Banff uh, Sunshine Village is, is your resort, but there is a pass that covers uh, all so- three ski areas. We call Calgary the gateway to the Canadian Rockies. It's 90 minutes from YYC, Calgary International Airport, to Banff, or to Banff Sunshine Village. And then Ski Big 3 is a joint venture between Sunshine and Lake Louise, and Norquay being the small guy on it. But it is a shared pass and a way that we can play very friendly with one another in growing the destination awareness to our location. I've always wondered this. Tell, see tell me, why is a three-letter code for Calgary YYC? That doesn't make any sense. I have no clue. I've been trying to figure it out all of my life. Um, all airports in Canada have a Y first, and then Okay. Is why because Calgary ends in a Y and starts with a C? I don't know. I I blame the French for creating it. 
I did I did used to work as a travel agent, uh, you know, for a while. I was like, I was dealing with all these three letter codes, and those ones like that always that uh, always uh, stood out. So back to Sunshine Village, then uh, the actual area itself. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, the ski area? Sunshine Village is the premier destination for skiing and snowboarding or winter sports in the Canadian Rockies. We have our own on-mountain hotel. It's an 84-room boutique hotel located in what we call our little island in the sky. We are accessible only by gondola. So it's kind of, it's very cool. It's like a snow lock destination. And we have a roughly 3,358 acres of skiable terrain. We were originally discovered and built as part of the CP railway expansion. So Sir William Van Horn, who was paid the princely sum of a hundred thousand pounds to unite Canada's East coast and West coast got to bear. And I imagine he had a very posh accent and it's said that he exclaimed, if I cannot export the scenery, I will import the tourists. So he got to work on building <laughs> the Vamp Springs Hotel. And the Vamp Springs Hotel became this wildly famous destination. It's one of Fairmont's crown jewels. And at its origin, we would have Bostonites and people from Manhattan coming and staying for two, three months in the summer. And Sunshine kind of came as a way to give them something else to do, to give them an extra activity. And it was also in the late 1920s when there's a quote from another sir from a previous British empire working in Canada. And he declared, I've come to learn three things are certain at this Alpine village, death, taxes, and snow. And from there, we grew into a ski resort. So we built our first lift in 1935. It was a small pommel lift or a single kind of rota with a pommel lift. I don't know why we still call them pommel lifts. They make such better chairs. Then we grew from there. So Sunshine is this origin place for mountain memories and magic. It's one of the very first places people could ski in the Canadian Rockies. And it has grown from a very small resort to the resort with the most modern lifts in Western Canada. Oh, I mean, it sounds great. You said Western Canada because it, you're actually, are you bridging two provinces in, we, in the ski area? We are. We are the only resort in Canada that actually allows you to ski between two provinces. And in Alberta, our drinking age is 18. In BC, it's 19. And as an 18-year-old, I was desperate for my dad to develop some sort of bar where it could be the 18 and a half bar. <laughs> obviously it didn't happen apparently it would be a logistic nightmare but we are the only place you actually go up the continental divide and that separates alberta on the east bc on the west and you can ski it all the way up so we joke that if you were to pour water or melt snow from one location or you know write your name in the snow if you are a man and can do that depending on where it would go it either goes into the pacific or it would go into Hudson's Bay. And with sunshine and our ski terrain, so much of it has been hand-picked. So unlike many of our competitors, we actually have great beginner terrain and then terrain that grows up with you all the way to something like Delirium Dive or the Wild West, which is lift-accessible backcountry. It's wildly steep. It's some of the steepest terrain. It's been ranked by CNN as the world's toughest run in that group. So it's pretty cool to see it. And we're also very unique, unlike many of our American and fellow North American resorts, where it's all within the Alpine. We have both that above Alpine skiing and then the tree skiing. I love the fact that we're talking about your family connections to the resort. And actually, for the listeners' benefit in the background, uh, we can see the next uh, member of the family. Based on his age, he's not going to be uh, joining Sunshine uh, Village yet, but I'm sure that will happen down the track. Yes, it definitely will. Excellent. Well, that's really a good... Uh, and really interesting, Kendra. I've got one other question for you. When I was listening to your podcast, I think you said you've been skiing with Robin Williams before. <laughs> I what was he like as a skier? <laughs> oh, he was amazing. When I was skiing with Robin Williams, it was years ago, we would host these charity ski events for various organizations. And he was up supporting the Waterkeepers Alliance. He was just so kind, so open, so funny. I actually took him I made, I would only ski our slow lifts so I could spend more time with him. 
but it was that also a mistake because he made me laugh so hard that I actually peed myself. And I was like, oh, this was a very bad decision. He was an absolute gem. Oh, I love that. So you actually saying to me, he's, he was as funny in real life as he is in uh, all his various movies. As funny, as kind, as open. He made great friends with the ski instructor that he he rode with at Sunshine. He was a snowboarder and he would fly that instructor to ski with him wherever. He came back several times. He he was a very bright soul. Excellent. Well, that's lovely to hear. Thanks so much for sharing all of that, uh, Kendra. Right. Third guest on the show today. I'm going to move on to you, Crystal. You've been sitting very patiently <laughs> there. I mean, Crystal Killery in Killington. Surely everyone must mention that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's like it was a job made for me, right? I... Uh... I grew up skiing here. I learned how to ski and snowboard here. And when I chose a college, I wanted to go to college at the college closest to Killington Resort. So I feel like um, my name, being able to ski here as a kid, it was a match made in heaven for me. <laughs> Destiny, clearly. And so yeah. we, we've, we're moving around for listeners' benefit. We've been moving around in Maribel. I think my, you know a lot of our listeners would be familiar with that. We we were over in um, in Canada. In I just have to check my provinces. It's BC, isn't it? Mainly. We're in Alberta. Calgary's in yep. Alberta. So in Alberta, in Canada. Now, Killington itself is over on the east coast of the States in Vermont, right? In eastern yes. North America. So if you were flying uh, in there, you know, which airports would you be going to, to to access it? I would say the easiest airport is probably flying into Boston. And then we're about two and a half hours from Boston. We do have a smaller airport in Burlington, Vermont, uh, which is only about an hour and a half away um, but there's more flights, obviously, coming in and out of Boston. For sure. And it's the largest ski, ski resort in eastern North America on the eastern side, right? It is. We're known as the beast of the east. How many, I think you work things out in terms of, uh, you know, acreage or hectares of skiing area in the States. What, what does it total up to? Yeah. So I guess we're, um, nine, we're 92 miles. We have 92 miles of skiing across Killington and Pico. Um, Pico is our our sister mountain right down the street um between both resorts we have seven peaks 92 miles of skiing and then at killington we have 155 trails and 22 lifts right okay evidently that is a lot just explain to me how pico mountain fits in then are the two areas connected by lifts or are they uh, separate mountains they're separate um but if you purchase a killington pass it will also get you pico um pico is just a couple miles down the road uh we're both part of the powder portfolio so um both resorts are owned by powder i would say like pico is like that definitely like charming um vermont family type mountain there's one lodge one way down um it is definitely the mountain I learned to ski at. It was the first place that I taught ski lessons at. Um, it was my first job here at Killington and Pico. And um, it does like hold a special place in my heart and a bunch of locals hearts. Um, and I think if it was not right next to Killington, right, it would be a large mountain and people would acknowledge it that way. Um, but because it's right next to Killington, it is a uh, we consider it like the small family mountain. <laughs> Whereas Killington is obviously, you know, it's, it has a, a very a large amount of uh, terrain and it presumably attracts, you know, a lot of clientele uh, as well. You mentioned you're quite close to Boston, which is a very big city. You get mainly people coming up from there or people flying up from New York as well or, or all across the East Coast. Yeah, I would say all across the East Coast. So I'm originally from New Jersey, um, and it's a six-hour drive, and everyone in that area would drive up to Killington and Pico. So New Jersey, New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, like all of New England, Vermont in general is just the place to be. I mean, that doesn't surprise me, really. I um, was out in Australia in the summer, uh, and I was uh, from Sydney. I actually went skiing for the weekend down in, in Threadbow uh, Parisha, and the drive was actually slightly longer than that. I think maybe seven hours or something like that. And like, it was no big deal. If you're living in Sydney and you like skiing and the conditions look good, people would do the drive. And I think people mm -hmm. who live in Australia and the States, uh, North America, don't tend to think too much of, you know, that's not really such a long journey, is it? Six hours. If you're in Britain, you know, you can travel the whole length of the country uh, in, <laughs> in that sort of time. We used to do it every single weekend. And there are a lot of our guests do that. We, we call them weekend warriors. 
I think those are the people that have the serious commitment that are willing to do it every weekend or even every other weekend. They're they're the people that are like in it to win it for sure. And you opened last weekend. Was it busy last weekend? It was. So we always open our day one is always for season pass um, members. So we open just the season pass members on Friday and then we open to the public on Saturday. And since we were the first resort in the area to open, which we typically are, um, we got people from all over the place. Like if you see some of our social channels in the comments, like as soon as we made the announcement, which we only made Wednesday night, um, people were get like getting ready to get in the car and come here. So it was really exciting. We um, we did donate ten dollars for each person that came to some local charities um, on Friday. So that was fun, um, and it's just always like people are just really excited to be here. So that that was ahead of your planned opening date then. Is that right? So we actually never have a planned opening day. So it is always um, as soon as we can. Um, It's been as early as mid-October. This is the earliest we've opened in four years, um, which was even more exciting. So you're open already, but the the big weekend coming up will be the Thanksgiving weekend later in uh, November. British people won't not know when it is, but we're talking about 25th, 26th of uh, November. Not only because it's Thanksgiving, but also you're hosting the Women's World Cup over that weekend. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, so it is our seventh World Cup and hosting it on Thanksgiving weekend. We get to host it on Thanksgiving weekend because of our extensive snowmaking system and our world-class snowmaking team. It's exciting that we can make that much snow. And also, you know, we we still are very weather dependent. So um, I will say that Superstar, the trail that the World Cup is on, is already covered. Um, They have been making snow nonstop on it when we do have the weather. It's a little warm right now, so it is off, but it is expected to go back on tomorrow. We also have all of our World Cup entertainment. So World Cup, like, We do have obviously the ski racing, but it is a party of a weekend. We kick it off on Friday night with fireworks, a bib draw, and then Saturday morning, there's a parade with all of the local athletes. So a bunch of the local ski teams are in the area. So it's not just the ski race, although that is the important part. It is a big party throughout the weekend. Sure. And, you know, I read somewhere that it's the most attended fish race of the winter. We've had upwards of 40,000 spectators um, come across throughout the weekend. We're, we're always typically between that 35 and 40,000 mark. It's so interesting from a European point of view. You know, we tend to be so focused on something, let's say, like Kitzbühel or Han and Calm there or their Schladming night race, etc. And kind of forget that you've got 30, 35, 40,000 people turning up for an early season race over in the state. Yeah, and it is the first race in the state. So... Ski racing in New England, people like when we brought it back, people were so excited. And every year they just turn out more and more and more. And not only is there 40,000 people here, but they cheer for every single athlete. They don't care where the athlete is from. It is deafening when they when someone comes down that last headwall and the crowd goes wild every single race, every single athlete. I'm like, these people can possibly not have a voice on Monday morning when they get to work. <laughs> Excellent. Well, I look forward to uh, catching up with that one on, on Eurosport, whichever channel it's on uh, over here. I know that Killington has got a lot of uh, s- sustainable initiatives going on. You have quite a lot of solar power. I think you're using HVO to power some of the snow groomers, etc. But The story I was most interested in was about cow power. Uh, and I was watching a video about that. I wondered if you explained to us what cow power is. Right. So um, I, I love that video and I'm glad that you got to see it. So um, so cow power is exactly what it sounds like. We get cow manure from local farms all across Vermont and they power our, our lifts. Um, not all the lifts, but most of the lifts. That has, I don't even remember how many years we've been doing that. It's been at least seven or eight years it's, it's something so normal here, and I don't think anything of it. But then if you leave Vermont, it's probably not that normal of a thing. 
Yeah, well, I'm going to put a link to that into the uh, show notes, but it made me think maybe more resort should be uh, looking at that as well. Well, that's brilliant, uh, Crystal. So date 25th and the 26th of November to look out for those World Cup uh, races. I'm going to jot that into my diary uh, as well. We're just going to move towards the uh, close now. I, I enjoy all feedback about the show. I like to know what you think, listener, especially about our features. So please do contact me on social at Ski Podcast or by email theskipodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've had quite a lot of feedback since the last uh, episode actually the last episode was an interview with Bodie Miller which is very exciting I didn't drop any uh, feedback uh, into that one so we've got quite a lot to catch up with I'm going to hold some back for the next time but Amy Stewart said a uh, long time listener uh, got to hear about uh, Threadbow and Perisher in episode 182 love it as a long-time instructor over here, it's awesome to finally hear about this unique ski area on an international level. Uh, the podcast was great during the pandemic uh, when I was over here, unable to get home to keep me in touch and the winter season uh, back in Europe. Um, Ollie very kindly bought me a coffee. He said, great to meet you at the London Ski Show. I remember meeting you, uh, Ollie. I look forward to listening to more episodes this winter. Uh, James bought me a coffee. I really enjoy the podcast. Wide range of topics. Keep up the good work. And Hans Weeren, or possibly Viren, uh, said, uh, just started listening to the podcast. Nice work. Uh, listeners, regular listeners will know that we were nominated for Best Broadcast Programme in the Travel Media Awards. We didn't win that one, lost out of the BBC, but still did very well to be uh, listed as a finalist. And Miranda Slater said, big congratulations as being honoured with a finalist uh, position. Keep up the good work as you're a great channel. And Matt Hayes, long-time listener, uh, I know Matt is, said congratulations and a great achievement for the pod. Uh, hopefully it serves as some compensation and recognition of the time, dedication and quality that you put into it. And uh, I really appreciate that, Matt, because I do all of those things. Uh, and as you know, I know you've been listening since really early on. So I really appreciate your feedback. Finally, if you like the podcast, there are three things you can do to help. You can review us on Apple Podcasts uh, or Spotify. You can subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. And finally, you can book your ski hire with Intersport Rent using the code Ski Podcast or by taking the link in the show notes. Now, there are 190 episodes to catch up with. 129 we listened to in the last week, and that is amazing. Uh, we have a lot of content there. So just go to skipodcaster.com, have a look around. We've covered so many different topics. You'll definitely find something of interest to you. You can follow me at Skipedia and the podcast at Ski Podcast. But for now, I would like to thank InSport for sponsoring the show and brought my guest today, Kendra. Thank you. And Crystal, thank you. Thanks for having me. And David, thanks very much. It's a great pleasure. Really nice to be with you, Ian. Excellent. And finally, listener, thank you for joining us. And until next time, goodbye. <laughs>